Open your Bible with me to Matthew 22. And as you do that, if I haven't met you, my name is Ken DeLage. I serve as the senior pastor here at Mercy Hill, and it is great to be together for our second time this year, I think, as a church. And for those of you that missed the one time before, welcome to church in 2022. It is a strange rhythm that we are in right now. So how do you know that you can trust God today, heading into tomorrow in the middle of the strange rhythm that we're in or in the middle of sickness and disease and snowstorms and all the things that we're collectively facing and perhaps the more difficult things that you're facing? How do we, how do we know that he's in control when life feels out of control. I think this is one of the biggest challenges for the believer, honestly, is, is to walk forward into a place of uncertainty, certain in Him. I think one of the, one of the things the Lord has given us to aid us in this is His track record of acting in the past. We don't show up today without a history. And if you've walked with the Lord for any period of time, you have a personal history of walking with the Lord, one that, one that we do well to remember. But we also have been given a, a history of the mighty acts of God in Scripture, and even a little bit beyond Scripture, as Scripture talks about what He would do in, uh, in the rest of history. So this morning, we're actually going to look at a parable in Matthew 22, where Jesus gives us an overview of history. And and the overview of history is, is of the people of God and God's actions among the people of God. And it covers quite a bit of time, really everything from Abraham and the initial gathering of a few people that God would then use to to have this nation that would, would follow after him and and then into the church era and all the way down to today. The, the parable that we're looking at is, is sort of God's perspective on the history of his people. And that's exciting because we live in that time right now. It's, it's, it's one of the few in Matthew where we can say, no, this, this was actually meant to speak even of the time that we live in right now. Now, there's, there's so much in here that we're actually going to take two weeks on it. One one, we're going to just kind of, this morning, look at the history together so that we can recount again the faithfulness of God, so that we can recount again the goodness of God, the mighty deeds of God, so that we as a people can trust God today. It occurred to me in preparing for this that you know, amongst the, the things that the church should be about, or I might say it, uh, a part of the culture that the church should have is a culture of remembrance, of remembering what God has done. And part of that, it just falls into what we would normally call, outside of the church at least, history. Here's what God has has done. And I think what we're going to look at this morning is a little bit less known, perhaps, to most of us uh, than some of the other events in biblical history that we have have talked about. So let's, let's look back at God's hand in the past so that we can anticipate his hand again in the present. 
So open your Bible, if you haven't already, to Matthew 22. We're going to look at the parable of the wedding feast, both this week and next week. And this morning, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. So let's read these together. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was very angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. God's word. Like I said, we're going to take this over two weeks. Um, I even stopped technically before maybe some would consider the, par- uh, the, the parable ending, uh, which might be down to verse 14, but we'll, we'll cover that when we get there next week. But let's just, let's just look at what's happening here because parables are, well, they're parables, right? They're not direct teaching, so it takes a little bit of seeking to understand what is Jesus really talking about here. And he's telling us a parable about the kingdom of heaven. All right, that's how he begins. So this, and he says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to this. So there's overlap. There's similarities to what Jesus is saying and to the way that God's kingdom actually works. And so it can be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and he invited people to come. So clearly in this, the king is, is God himself, is God the Father, and he's giving a wedding feast for his son, that is for Jesus, and he's inviting people into that. So this is a, this is a picture, this is a story of God's pursuit of mankind, of God preparing communion for people with himself a people that are, that are sinful, a people that are rebellious, a people that are wandering from God, God is preparing for them to have relationship with Him, to be in relationship with Him. And that is spoken of in terms of this wedding feast. Well, He sends His servants, it says, to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. So, so you think about what's happening here. They're, they're going out to call those who had already been invited. So we kind of almost pick up in the middle of the story in the sense that invitations had already gone out a long time ago. Those who were invited knew they were invited, and we might even say they had RSVP'd. Right? These, these are those that are on the list. They're the ones that are supposed to be coming. And meanwhile, God has been preparing this banquet, preparing this wedding feast, preparing for this time of communion and celebration with his people. And this group that had been invited, 
that, that Jesus is talking about sending the servants to is, is the Jewish nation. This is the Old Testament people of God who had been gathered together by God's gracious acts. He had, he had pulled them out of Egypt in the Exodus. He had made them a people. He had given them his law that they could follow. He had given them the sacrificial systems that they could uh, worship him and follow after him. So they were invited in a distinct way into communion with God. And then the Lord sends out his servants and say, hey, the wedding's ready. Come on. And they refused to come. A picture of how God would send his prophets in the Old Testament to his people, and they would harden their hearts and stopper their ears to God and would refuse to come. But he doesn't just do this once. It says in verse 4, again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatted calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. The the tone of this is almost pleading. I think we could say it is pleading. God is saying, I have done everything necessary for you to have communion with me. Won't you come? You have been invited. You, You rejected the first invitation of the servant. So see, I'm sending others and others and others and others. And we get the distinct impression, and in fact, it's true, that the Lord has a greater desire for his people to gather around him than his people do to be gathered. And that was particularly true in this historic situation. After he had sent those Second group of servants, that is, more prophets had gone. We hear in verse 5, but they paid no attention. Here's the Lord pleading for fellowship with his people. He is, by the way, the one that, that is wronged by our sin. He is the aggrieved party, not the aggrieving one. And yet he's the one pleading for them to repent, to turn, to come, to commune with him. And they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. Busy lives that we have, Lord, no time for you. We've got our own plans. We've got our own desires. We've got the things we want to accomplish, and we're going to be about that. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. You can hear this kind of escalation of response. Maybe the first time was just ignoring the prophets that had come. Maybe, maybe the next time you're, you're ignoring it, and you're just, man, getting off back to your farm, back to your business, back to what you have. And now again, the prophets keep talking, and the people get annoyed and angry and begin to verbally abuse and then physically abuse and harm and treat them shamefully. And the prophets, in fact, are killed by the people they had been sent to. And then we get to verse 7. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed their mur- those murderers and burned their city. It is a... This is a devastating word right here. Jesus is giving now a prediction 
of what's going to happen to the Old Testament people of God. They had already been exiled once, and and God had graciously brought them back into the land. In many ways, that was to prepare for the time of Christ, this very time right here. But now Jesus is saying to them, yes, this city of theirs is going to be burned. This is the first time that I recall seeing, it's probably in other places in Scripture, but I don't recall seeing it, where Jerusalem is called their city by God rather than my city by God. I'm going to destroy their city. And in this, God is, Jesus is speaking ahead of the fact that God is going to abandon Jerusalem, that the temple, the Old Testament temple that has stood uh, on and off for over a thousand years will no longer be the seat of his presence, that his gracious presence would no longer inhabit the holy place, that he would leave that holy of holies. And what we're going to see in the rest of the parable, he's going to build a new temple, don't worry, that's coming. But this is his removing of his protection off of Jerusalem and off of the temple. And in fact, his anger against it. And he, Jesus says that he will destroy those murderers and burn their city. This is, this is the Son of God speaking judgment over those who are about to kill him. He's, he's going to be murdered. And he's saying that his Father will avenge that soon. And this is where we get to a point in history that I'm not sure how familiar we actually are because it takes us a little bit outside of the pages of Scripture exactly. Jesus is pointing ahead to this event. This isn't the only time, by the way, that he points ahead to the destruction, the burning of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, We're going to encounter it, in fact, several times as we make our way through the book of Matthew. Over in chapter 23, verse 37, Jesus looks out over Jerusalem. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem! the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Again, just the pleading heart of Christ over the people in Jerusalem. Turn to me, turn to me. I would have you. I would take you back. You'd be forgiven. Uh, And yet the people harden their hearts at the coming of Christ. They harden their hearts to God. And so their house is left desolate. It's a short phrase, but a big word. Where there will be judgment upon the house of Israel. Just a few verses later, Jesus says, this is the beginning of chapter 24. He's looking over the temple in Jerusalem. His disciples have pointed it out to him. And he says, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He looks at the the grand, grand edifice that was the Old Testament temple. And he says, not one stone will be left upon the other. This is a very, very precise kind of prophecy of what was going to happen to the city of Jerusalem. 
Well, this would all be fulfilled. Jesus died and was raised in roughly the year 33 to 35 AD. And just about 30 years later, in the year 66 AD, the Jewish people revolted against Rome. So, of course, the Jewish nation was under the Roman Empire this entire time, but they rose up in active, armed insurrection and rebellion. They revolt. Now, this is still in the lifetime of some of the apostles. This is still in the lifetime of many who heard Jesus right here, certainly amongst the youngers that had heard him speak. This began in the year 66, and after four years of war, Rome had, you know, it took a while back then, sent its armies all the way from Rome, made its way through Israel, taking down stronghold after stronghold. And now in the year 70, Jerusalem is surrounded by her enemies. The Roman legions are pushing in at the walls. They are led by none other than the son of the emperor. The emperor at the time is Vespasian, and his son's name is Titus. Camped with them outside the walls, observing all of this, is a man named Josephus. You might have heard of Josephus. He's probably the most famous historian of the ancient era. Josephus was a leader, a Jewish leader of the revolt, who got captured early on in the war and then used by the Romans as a negotiator with the Jews. So he was in the Roman camp and permitted everywhere. And just in the providence of God, this man that was there was a, well, he was a historian. I mean, he was an author of, um, um, he's an amazing author. I don't, know, I don't know what to say. Here's how good of an author he is. Uh, he wrote a book, you know, roughly the year 70 AD that you can go get on Amazon right now. That's pretty good in terms of staying power for a book. I don't know. I mean, that's, uh, that's quite a, a legacy of time. It's called the, the Jewish War. And he witnessed firsthand the fall of Jerusalem and the sufferings of her people, and he wrote about them. And I want to read a little bit for you today. The first describes, begins at the altar. And it begins at the altar because the first uh, breach into the wall of the city of Jerusalem happened right at the temple. And so the Roman legions were pouring in right there at the temple. Caesar, uh, that can be confusing for us. Titus was called Caesar even though he wasn't the emperor yet, but they called him Caesar. Caesar leading the way in. Round the altar the heap of corpses grew higher and higher, while down the sanctuary steps poured a river of blood, and the bodies of those killed at the top slithered to the bottom. The soldiers were like men possessed, and there was no holding them, nor was there any arguing with the fire. Caesar therefore led his staff inside the building and viewed the holy place of the sanctuary with its furnishings which went far beyond the accounts circulating in foreign countries and fully justified their splendid reputation in our own. What a picture of a pagan ruler 
entering the Holy of Holies. You're familiar with the Old Testament temple. This did not happen. The Jews were not allowed in the Holy of Holies. One man, once a year, the high priest, after a sacrifice had been made, and with a rope to pull him back out if God would strike him dead. And here, God, having left the temple, in strolls Caesar himself and gazes upon the temple. One page over. While the sanctuary was burning, looting went on right and left, and all who were caught were put to the sword. There was no pity for age, no regard for rank. Little children and old men, laymen and priests alike were butchered. Every class held in the iron embrace of war, whether they defended themselves or cried for mercy. Through the roar of the flames as they swept relentlessly on could be heard the groans of the falling. Such were the height of the hill and the vastness of the blazing edifice that the entire city seemed to be on fire. While as for the noise, nothing could be imagined more shattering or more horrifying. There was the war cry of the Roman legions as they converged, the yells of the partisans encircled with fire and sword, the panicked flight of the people cut off above into the arms of the enemy and their shrieks as the end approached. The cries from the hill were answered from the crowded streets and now many who were wasted with hunger and beyond speech found strength to moan and wail when they saw the sanctuary in flames. He just described the sounds. Now the sights. Yet more terrible than the din were the sights that met the eye. The temple hill enveloped in flames from top to bottom appeared to be boiling up from its very roots. Yet the sea of flames was nothing to the ocean of blood or the companies of killers to the armies of killed. Nowhere could the ground be seen between the corpses and the soldiers climbed over heaps of bodies as they chased the fugitives. And so ended the temple. The king was very angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. There was, at the hearing of this, celebration back in Rome. In fact, they, Rome knew how to celebrate these kinds of things. Uh, they, they waited a long time. They brought their whole army back. They brought Titus back. They let him lead the way back into the city with a great parade that lasted for just days. He built a temple. Um, he, they erected for him a victory arch called the Arch of Titus. If you go to Rome, you can see it today. So this was erected to celebrate his victory over the Jews. Um, it says at the top, you know, from the people and the Senate to the divine Titus. And on this, there is uh, around the sides, which you can't really see in this picture, or maybe it's on the, in I think it's on the inside, engravings of the parade. I'm about to read the parade, but I want you to see one of the engravings of the parade of the, the people from Israel. Next slide. So here's the parade, and what they're carrying are the relics from the temple. 
you can see the menorah, the Jewish menorah that was actually in the holy place that had been carried all the way back to Rome. Um, in front of that, you know, their pieces are falling off, but the table for the showbread, you can read about in the Old Testament, carried through the streets of, of Rome. Reading the last section that I'm going to read. At the end of this parade, most of the spoils that were carried back were heaped up indiscriminately. But more prominent than all the rest were those captured at the temple in Jerusalem. A golden table weighing several hundredweight and a lampstand, similarly made of gold but differently constructed from those we normally use. The central shaft was fixed to a base and from it extended slender branches placed like the prongs of a trident. And with the end of each one forged into a lamp. These numbered seven, signifying the honor paid to that number by the Jews. After these was carried the Jewish law, the last of the spoils. So here Josephus, again, writing his firsthand account, talks about seeing that menorah carried through the street. And, And then they had built a temple called Peace. That's ironic. Uh, and they put these things into that temple, the menorah and the table, the showbread, and the last thing, the Jewish law, the Torah itself, right? Most sacred to the, to the Jewish people, uh, brought in and put into a pagan temple. You can take the, the slides down for now, thank you. As hard as this is, by the way, I find the history interesting, instructive for us. This is part of our history in in the sense of this. God was ending an era. He was destroying the useless temple that was governed by those who were sinning against him, that were destroying the prophets, that were murdering the prophets, that would murder his son. And now he would build a new temple. And that's what we begin to see in verses 8 through 10. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. This is a kind of pre-telling of the Great Commission. When I hear the words in here, go therefore, I think of another, go therefore, at Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus gives the great commission to his church and says, go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to many nations. And so this is God turning from his old covenant to his new covenant, rejecting those who had rejected him after many, many appeals and turning to the world and beginning to give the good news. This is the gospel going out, right? This is why we send people to Southeast Asia, heading out to the roads and the highways and the byways, that the good news can be proclaimed, hey, the wedding feast is ready. God has done all that's needed. He's he's slaughtered the animals. He's, He's done all the preparations of the feast. All you need to do is come. Come to the wedding feast. Come and commune with your God. 
Ephesians chapter 2 pictures the New Testament people of God as the new temple. It says, But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Friend, where is the temple today? It is not in Jerusalem. It's not there anymore. That temple is destroyed, but God's temple is still upon the earth. And his temple is his people. He makes his dwelling place among us. Glory to God. What? He makes his dwelling place among us. The temple of the living God is wherever his people are gathered. Since the close of the New Testament, this is what's been happening. His servants have been going out to the highways and the byways and have been calling people, and people have been coming. And his new temple has been being built as, as we gather together. Gathered to the wedding feast. And by the way, the old temple has not been rebuilt. I think about this for a minute. I just want to say, historically, that's remarkable. That's remarkable because Orthodox Jews wouldn't mind having a temple for like the last 1,952 years. They have been denied this temple. And in fact, if you go to the place of the temple right now, and you can, here's what you will see. This is called the Temple Mount. I'm going to stand over here to... so. From this lower corner, you see a wall at the lower corner, all the way across the bottom. This is built up, time of Herod-ish, to flatten the top of the mountain to make lots of room for the temple. So that entire thing is called the Temple Mount. Upon this big flat area at the top is where the temple stood. And now you can look on the top and say, oh, look, there's something there. Yes, There's something there that has stood there for nearly 1,500 years, but it is not a Jewish temple. It is a Muslim mosque standing on the top of Jerusalem. It is the second holiest site to the Muslim people after the city of Mecca itself. Um, They believe a lot of things happened at this particular site. Um, And so, uh, suffice it to say, there's, there's no Jewish temple being built there anytime soon. Uh, Practically speaking or politically speaking or culturally speaking, it would be an impossibility to destroy this second most holy site of the second biggest religion in the world um, to rebuild a temple right there. And so what this, what I see when I see this is that God has put a stopper over the desire to rebuild an old covenant temple and said, no, I have a temple. That is not it. And it will not get rebuilt there. And who knows if he will allow it at some point in the future. It seems, again, very improbable at this point. Um, But here's the thing, and we can be done with the the slides. Um, The temple may have fallen, but God's kingdom is doing just fine. All right? 
This is, this is the beginning of the parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to, and then he goes on. And what does he talk about? He talks about this great banquet that the kingdom of heaven is going to have. And then he talks about those who rejected the invitation. And then he talks about God destroying their city. What got destroyed? It was not the kingdom of God that got destroyed. It was their city that got destroyed. His kingdom above all of that. His kingdom sovereign over all of that. Here is a picture of God's sovereignty over 4,000 years from Abraham's call until today. The kingdom of heaven is doing this. Calling a people together by the mercy of God to be in communion with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, at a banquet. This is what God has been about doing, is about doing, and will be about doing until the end of time. I want to just do a quick aside and acknowledge what we've looked at here is, first of all, the, the big theme is the sovereignty of God. God's governorship over history, his, his authority, his rule over history. But one of the aspects we just saw is the wrath of God. This is an uncomfortable part of the sovereignty of God for us often. You won't hear it on Christian radio, ever. You won't hear it from many a Christian pulpit. There's something in the water of our culture that, for the most part, is still willing to speak of the love of God, but never the wrath of God. And here on display, we do see the wrath of God poured out upon their city for their murdering of the prophets. I just want to point out the reality of it, and I want to talk for just a minute about the context of it, because the context of that wrath was mercy. It was an invitation, followed up by a reminder, followed up by another reminder, and another, and another, as God pleaded with people to turn to him. And though it does clearly say the king was angry, and that is the wrath of the king, it also gives us the reason for their destruction was not the anger of the king, but the wickedness of the people. That's, that's the biblical perspective on the wrath of God, is that it is a result of sin. And friend, anytime we, we talk about the wrath of God, for me, this actually helps me understand the cross a little bit better because there the wrath of God was poured out not on his people though they deserve it but on his son standing in place of his people and the wrath of God is a real thing there is no cross outside of God's anger against sin the cross speaks of God's anger against sin an anger against sin to the point of the death of Jesus, the Messiah. But the cross also speaks of the mercy and the love of God. That Christ willingly went to that cross and the Father 
so loved the world that he sent his own son to that cross so that whoever would believe in him would not, what? Perish. Another picture of wrath, but would have eternal life. And part of the message of this is to respond to the invitation of the king. If you're here and you've not responded to his invitation, his gracious and repeated invitation, can I encourage you to respond to the invitation of the king? He has done all that is necessary, including pay for your sin, that you could know him. I urge you to turn to him today, asking for his forgiveness, trusting him to forgive you. Friends, Church, I think the other thing that we we just see in here is God's complete sovereignty over human history. Like, some really bad things happened. Some some things that would look like setbacks. In fact, I, I don't know, what would it have looked like as Jerusalem fell? Did that look like the kingdom of God had just fallen? Oh no, what's God gonna do? But the kingdom of heaven can be compared to the one that sits above it all that is sovereign over it all, that knows all that's going to happen and is able, able to take even the evil and use it for good. And by the way, God's sovereignty does not mean everything is good because God's in charge. It doesn't mean that. Things are evil and wicked. There were murderers in the city that killed the prophets, right? There are evil things that happen. What God's sovereignty means is he takes even what is evil and uses it for good for the good of his people, for the good of those gathering into this very banquet, and for his own glory. So as we look back over history, we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Friend, you want confidence walking into tomorrow? Remember this, your God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases, comma, and you are his. All right, there we go. That's what we need. My God is in the heavens. Nothing can stop him. His will 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 absolutely be done. And I belong to him through Christ. Glory to God. So we look at the past and what happened here and what Josephus records. We see God's sovereignty working for the good of his people. As we look at the present, we can expect God's sovereignty as he will work for the good of his people. As we anticipate the future, we can expect God's sovereignty and that he will work for the good of his people. Let us be a place, church, that remembers, that looks back on the works of God, as we just talked about one here, but they're all throughout the scriptures, the mighty, sometimes terrifying, sometimes glorious works of God, that we remember those, that we speak them to one another, that we, that we bring them with us into today and into tomorrow and into the uncertain world that we live in. Let's remember the acts of God and then let's trust the God who acts and that he will continue to act in our lives as well. Let's pray together. Your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You are with us. 
and you are sovereign over us. God, thank you for the reminder this morning that your word gives us of just your awesome power, your plans which transcend time, which work themselves out over centuries and millennia, and yet work themselves out in our own hearts, in our own lives, in the details of what we walk through. Truly, you are in the heavens. You do all that you please. We are so glad that it pleased you to save sinners, that it pleased you to have a banquet and to send your servants out to the highways that we could be invited, we could be gathered in. Lord, help us trust and recall your sovereignty in each day and each step that we take. We ask this in your name. Amen.